Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the party, pals. This is Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Liam Billingham, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Phil Gawthorn. No relation. No relation. But Phil, I feel like we're more, it's less of a Special Agent Johnson, Agent Johnson, no relation thing than a Al Powell to your John McClane. Right, right. We're, we're bonding across the airwaves. You're uh, making fun of my donut, Twinkie habit, my Twinkie driving. There's Twinkie wrappers everywhere it's here. It's disgusting in here. It's just, ugh. And yet you're oddly, you're oddly lovable, and just like Al Powell. Yeah, there's something charming and charismatic about me. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So so we're, we're into that dynamic. Um, it's, it's feeling good. <laughs> yeah. Feeling good. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're going to yeah. get really closer as yeah, you get glass in yeah, your feet. Exactly. It's going to be great. We'll start to, um, you know, uh, admit our vulnerabilities as time as time goes on. So, um, <laughs> so, so last time we talked uh, our way through Die Hard, um, scene by scene in our in our comprehensive analysis. Today we're going to do something um, slightly different. We're going to talk about. Um, Die Hard's DNA, the origins of Die Hard, the other um, movies and books and other elements that influence Die Hard. And we're also going to talk about the the key elements that are critical to the success of any action movie, um, the anatomy of an action movie, if you like. And Die Hard, I would say, is pretty much full marks in every the, category. Yeah, sort of the, uh, the, uh, the, the OG yeah, the top, the top dog. Yeah, it's sort of patient zero of this action movie genealogy. I don't know if patient project. zero is the language we want to use, considering the past few years of yeah, our maybe lives. not. Outbreak, good movie. <laughs> um, let's get right into it. We want to move into a section. Uh, that I'm calling Anatomy of an Action Movie, where we, we talk about the key elements that I think are critical to the success of any action movie. How many are there? There are six that I have identified. Number one, the hero. Number two, the villain or villains. The premise, okay, the setup. The ticking clock. So that's like the thing that propels the story forward? The premise would be, yeah, like, you know, what's our launch pad for it? But, you know, we almost every action movie has some kind of ticking clock, so we should talk so about that. So is it like that. a bus that can't go below exactly. 50, yeah, for example? Some, some begin with the ticking clock, or in this case, the ticking clock kind of towards the third act. Got it. Um, the action itself and the humor, you know, which I think is an important element. So why don't we start by talking about the hero and about what makes John McClane so appealing? Why has this character caught the public imagination? I don't think you can dispute the importance of Bruce Willis in the part. I think he's just really likable and smart. I mean, that's the thing. He's like he's got street smarts, whatever mm. that means, right? And like Bruce Willis has a great as an actor, always and maybe this is you know, I think it's hard to distinguish sometimes between Bruce Willis and John McClane. Bruce Willis and this character have like a great bullshit meter. I think there are a great sort of like our great entry point into the story because we are 
We like him for a myriad of reasons we've already listed. He he doesn't sit in the back of the limo. He is suspicious of all authority around him. He feels like a regular a regular person, whatever that means. And part of that is just like you watch him thinking about the things he's thinking. And I feel like most of the time in the movie, I agree with his takes on things. It's also interesting how he could be so, and this was unique in the, in the climate of you know, the rise of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and to some extent, you know, Chuck Norris and those type of action stars. This was unique at the time because there was a vulnerability and an everyman quality to this character. He wasn't a muscle-bound Superman. Right. You know, he was a regular guy and caught in the wrong place. Another thing, though, I think that's important to mention just about this is the blue-collar thing. But when John McClane enters the building, again, this was just this is what we're mm. talking about with nuance. He gives the security guard, the second one, he gives him a little nod as he's walking through to the elevators. And right. I, I was just thinking about that moment. It's a not, it's a seemingly inconsequential moment, but I was thinking like, those are his guys. They're probably ex-cops. Right. Whereas when he goes upwards, ascends to the mm. the highfalutin executives and their cocaine and their materialism and their questionable ethics, he does not get... He doesn't feel comfortable. He's a, right. he's a bit of a fish out of water. What, one thing I thought you were going to mention, and I'm... I'm is that when he walks into the building, he walks up to the reception desk and he says, hi, I'm here for Holly McLean. And the guy says, just punch it in on the computer screen there. And he kind of goes like, I'm kidding me. Like I have to, and he goes and he's like sort of like hesitantly punching it in. Like this is a guy who's like, no, you just talk to a person and that person tells me where to go. Like that's a human interaction. And it feels like a part and parcel with the late 80s with like the rise of computing software and this kind of like stuff that we all take for granted now, digital life that like- He's like, a bit of uh, an anachronism. An anachronism. Yeah. And, but also I think him nodding at the security guard is a little bit like that's a human being, like yeah. the humanity in that. And yeah. like- no way Ellis makes eye contact with the he reception He would see them person. as furniture. Yeah, exactly. You know, whereas and McLean I, sees them as people. And I think that that is, he's like, a, he, in some weird way, and it feels a little antiquated, he says to Ellis, I, you, you know, or he says, Hans, this guy, this guy doesn't know who you, who you are, but I do. Like, he really is, he knows, he knows who, not, who not to trust. He knows who to trust. I mentioned this earlier. When he finally gets upstairs, he's so withholding to Takagi, who's like, Takagi's being a nice guy like he's being welcoming like he knows there might be some tension between him and holly and like at one point he says to him like can i get you anything and mclean goes no thank you i'm fine and there's so much like see he puts the drink down as well i think doesn't he, he? Takes a sip he's kind of like, like yeah, what's yeah. that i but i, what I was do that, love that he like way. takes this shitty cocktail and takes a sip and goes nope stop yeah, for me I, right I mean, i've never met a cocktail i didn't like yeah and i i think that he just it's all illustrating how like holly's probably financial situation and status is vastly superior to right. to his and it's make it's probably like um Salt in the wound for him, right. you know, like, oh, look at all this opulence. And, you know, so he is kind of coming in with his arms folded and being like, fuck these L.A. douchebag people. Right. Like you I mean, he's like you said before, like there's something a little caveman-esque yep. about being like my wife makes more money. He's than a bit me, chauvinistic. You know? in Absolutely. It, right? Totally. But I and I think that that is more interesting than an unkillable machine like Schwarzenegger is in commando to some extent, which by the way is not a diss of that movie in any way, but like this movie and I, I gotta It doesn't gotta, exist in the real world. Right, right? exactly. But whereas Die Hard feels like it could exist in the real world, albeit slightly heightened. It's all yeah. on a it's all on a sliding scale. But you're still watching a a movie about a guy surviving every second at yeah. like at caught. Like it really is a movie He's about survival. He's flawed he but we like him. You right. know? 
and he's he has a bullshit meter yeah. that I think is really that's strong. a good it's a yeah. good point. So so that's our hero. Let's talk a little bit about the vill the villain brackets villains. Right. Why do we love Hans Gruber? Sub question: Is Gruber the goat? I was saying this um, to someone the other day. I think Alan Rickman is maybe the best part of this entire movie. I really, really think so. And and I think that this relates to actually McLean and Hans are really, really similar guys. And I think that beyond their cunning and about their wit, I think they're similar because they have the same distrust of authority. I think, for all the reasons we labeled before, McLean looks at money and he looks at wealth and he goes like, Oof, uh, this is not my world. Whereas Hans is trying to take that wealth away from the people that have it. And also, I love so much how he has no beliefs. His beliefs are, I want to be rich, sitting on an island, earning 20%. Very 80s. Very, so incredibly 80s. sensibility. 80s. And I feel like maybe in the 80s that was kind of scary, but now it's like kind of refreshing that this guy isn't like a zealot or a lunatic. And it's you know? one of the things that, you know, McTiernan adjusted about the character and we'll talk, we're going to get into the book and, and the yeah. Gruber character features in the book and actually is a, a zealot, you know, is, is like Bader Meinhof, right. Red Army type, has a very specific political cause. Right. Whereas, you know, McTiernan making him this kind of 80s aspirational yuppie right. who was just like, yeah, you know what? Like, but he's also has a weird, like, is almost satirizing the corporate culture because he's like, these bear, I, I, I didn't know what bearer bonds were until recently. No one does. They're okay. just an 80s they're, trope. It's they don't a, actually but, exist. And they're in heat. They're right. in heat they're as well. Heat. They steal them from they're the security in, are they in truck. Weapon no, those are Krugerrands. Kru- Krugerrands. Right. Diplomatic immunity. <laughs> Sorry if I just blew out the mic, but I can't hear Lethal Weapon and not Where's do that. that? From? South Africa? <laughs> so uh, another future episode. Ugh, um, the best. But so bearer bonds, but essentially it's kind of like the crypto of its time, right. in the sense that they're untracked and it's basically shady. Right. You know, hence why in Heat they're stealing it from criminals and they try and sell it back to them because it's not something that has value in a conventional way. Right. Gruber knows that this company. It, and, and again, this is the book leans into this a bit more. Are uh, not an ethical company and are up to some pretty shady, right. shady shit. Even if Takagi seems, you know, somewhat of a noble and there's character, pro- there's a little bit of critique in that. And yes. again, it's the 1980s, it's the Wall Street era, like this sort of. And again, you know, this is why Willis is. I mean, sorry, McLean, <laughs> same guy. Yeah, McLean is suspicious yeah. of this because I think he's just like this is all bullshit. And I think that that's it's really... a house of cards, and there's right? A, yeah, again, it's that class rage that I think existed in that period. It's like it always does, and I think like you can feel that in the movie totally. I, I think the other thing that is hard to deny, and I can't believe it, is Alan Rickman's first movie. But they cast a Shakespearean actor to deliver heightened dialogue, to give a speech about Takagi's history, and be menacing. Like it's a really strong use of a theater actor in a movie because Hans Gruber is a little theatrical at times, especially in those early moments when he's talking to Takagi and kind of, you know, trying to bring him in and gesture and like play this role of like, I'm a terrorist. It's interesting you say that because now that I'm just, it's just making me think about the idea of like street theater, mm-hmm. you know, which is like a, uh, a police, a kind of, you know, a principle of like undercover work or essentially you're create you're, you're acting in a theatrical way for, a, you know, a different agenda. And actually a lot of the characters are playing roles at different times. And the, obviously the Ellis scene, there's right. an element of theatricality to that. Hans is grandstanding right. uh, that Holly calls him out on later. He's trying to almost 
show to Takagi, like I'm a, I could be a corporate executive, totally. you know, like you. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than and any of you. And he plays having an ideology you know? at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. The thing, and he says, like, I forget exactly what he says, but then he says, you'll all be witnesses. And he's it's almost like, like a priest uh, yeah. sitting there with his book, you know, kind of preaching to the, right. you know. The, and you notice none of the other terrorists talk to the hostages beyond telling them to get yeah, back. That's right. Like he really is the ringleader. And they sort of like position him as this suave figure who can talk to them, which by the way, is a great contrast to Carl, who's a elegant bruiser, because Hans can't be the guy he I mean in a fight with McLean, he's not Hans physical, is gonna is he? get his ass. Yeah, kicked, he's not right? he's not physical. It's all intellectual. He doesn't you know, need to get his hands dirty. Right? I believe I believe as well there was a version of it where the the, the characters turned up and they were in like overalls and stuff and, and or in early iterations of the script. But I think Rickman lent into this idea of like, no, Hans Gruber doesn't get his hands dirty. He has minions yeah, exactly. to do things for him. We should be in suits. Right. You know, or at least I should, because you know, I'm not I'm not grubbing around and And they're interesting dichotomy to you do know, that for me. Not to to talk very briefly about the villains, right? Like you have Carl who's dressed all in black. Well, let's to just frame this conversation, yes, if please. I may. Who's your favorite terrorist? <laughs> My favorite terrorist, it's a tie between Theo and Marco. Mark Marco the No More Table. No more yeah, No yeah. More Table. Yeah. He's he I mean he What nails, a psychopath. He nails his scene. He's amazing. Know. Don't shoot. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That's oh. such a brilliant piece of like theater. Yeah. Because he's uh -huh. signaling his friend who's coming behind him, I'm about to be shot. You right, know, right, right. he's saying don't shoot so that That moment Heinrich is so frenetic kind of, and scary too. Yeah, it's right? a great moment. It's and a great movie. Drop the drop the gun, motherfucker. You know, it's pretty um intense. Yeah, no, I'm a big Fritz guy who's the guy with the the, the long haired the guy. The long hair kind of reminds me of Jonathan from Queer Eye, you know. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> great. He's also kind of the yeah the most eighties of the of the. It of feels the like he's he, you know I imagine Fritz's backstory. He's like, look, I know we've got to go and do this Nakatomi thing, but I need to get the hair done first. I've I also got to look have good. an audition the next morning. You know, like, to play yeah. a, a bit part. He's, well, in he's a Hollywood. model. I imagine yeah. he's like got a bit of modeling. I need to look good. You know, so he kind of looks like he just stepped out of the salon. So I think I, I've got shout out to Fritz, but for me, it is a Theo. Like he's he's, oh, he's just, the best. Every scene, just yeah, as you say, charisma to he's dialed very up. casual. He's great. great. great he's also character. kind of establishes this thing that happened in the eighties, where it's like whenever there was a group of like bad guys, there was always the nerd. But yeah. Theo's a cool nerd. Yeah, like, yeah. One of my favorite little details is when the SWAT team is coming in. He's you know quarterbacking it and telling yeah, them what yeah. to do, and he's just kind of like chewing on some potato chips or something like that. Like, it's one of my yeah, favorite things. Or he's eating peanuts or something. Like, there's just something really, really It's cool. interesting you say cool. the quarterback thing, and he even says the quarterback is toast. He's kind of like a, a defensive coordinator. Right, exactly. You know, That's he's, a better he's, way to think he's about it. He's got the earpiece. You know, he's, like, calling the plays. Like, this is what the offense are going to do. This is how we're going to yeah, counter it's it. it's so good. It's, it's just brilliant. And, you, yeah, he's like the hacker kind of became a real a real trope in the 90s yeah. and 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 has continued to this this day and in fact even Die Hard 4 has a overt hacker it's about hacking right so there's several hacker characters but this is like a one of the most original takes on a on a hacker he feels like a really established character and you think he's going to be a bigger part of the movie than he ends up being because he plays such a big part early on in the movie the other henchman that I have to do a shout out to if only because of 80s action movie history Al Leong yes. as Uli Al Leong also plays Endo in Lethal Weapon. The we would guy be who, remiss um, if we didn't give Electra him props. Mel Gibson. Right. And also is in Big Trouble in Little China. So like three of the best action movies of the 80s by far and just like an, just an important guy, like a, a quintessential 
oh, I recognize that guy. And he also has the great moment where he is about, where the police are about to come in, as I recall, and he leans on the counter and you realize he's at the like snack counter in the lobby and he takes out a candy bar and starts eating it. I've always loved that moment. Again, it's these little character That's beats. That's what we're saying. These that tiny nuances the that are so entertaining, you right. know? And yes, I, I love that moment. I know a lot of people do. So so that's that's our villains covered. And yes, I, I personally, I do think, it, I think Gruber is the GOAT. Right. I actually think he is the greatest, not certainly the greatest action movie villain um, of all time. There's, there's, some, there's some great villains that we're going to Right. talk through but I also think he's in the argument for the greatest movie villain period I think he's up there you yeah know? for sure hey, let's talk about the 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 premise this is something that we're going to be talking about a lot in the show it you know the show is called Die Hard on a Blank in this movie it's Die Hard in a skyscraper terrorist right. slash thieves sees a, a skyscraper why is that is that a strong setup or and if so why like how, how do we feel about this in the pantheon of other Action. Like I think it works really well. I I was thinking about how like I don't think I personally have a strong geographic sense of the building. I don't think you ever go, oh, I know what floor I'm on right now necessarily. But I think that that's really powerful because there's something nightmarish about this building. It's very very high in the air. There's glass. You can turn a corner and like a terrorist can be there. These boardrooms are like just corporatized to all hell. Like there's a little bit of like style in the way that Takagi has like certain things set up but it feels very 80s and it feels very like again aspirational and like doesn't feel like a place you'd want to hang out yeah the, you alluded to why this is a good is a good premise and scenario and, and situation or location rather for uh, an action movie yeah there's a myriad of dangers in right. this place it's contained yet you could fall out. You could fall off the roof. There's the the elevator shafts. You know, it, it, it's it's a good arena for Lots for of mayhem. Ways to die. And it, it definitely is night nightmarish. There's a sort of claustrophobic aspect right. which it leans into with the air shaft, uh, the air shaft sequences, and so forth. So, I, I we'll talk about this in more detail with the mirror, with how other movies later on whether their their scenarios succeeded or failed, whether it was a boat, a plane, a bus, what have I you. I can't wait to talk um, about speed. I can't yes, wait to talk about uh, me, speed. Yes, me too. Oh, man. The ticking clock. The ticking clock. What's the ticking clock in the case of this movie? So the, what, what we have written down here is it's a, essentially the plot device, right? So what's the ticking clock? So in- I guess in this movie, the t- it's an interesting one, but I think the ticking clock only really kicks in t- in deep in the third act when they with the realization that the the roof is wired with heavy explosives. So the ticking they're clock they're going to kill all the terrorists. They're going to kill all the gonna hostages. They're going to kill all the hostages and they're going to blow the roof. But also at that point, I think McLean knows that the the helicopters are inbound. Right. So they are at risk. Now we know they're going to do it, right? No, we kind of don't. Know? I don't. Well, McLean. Re- I don't know if McLean knows the full end game of Gruber at that mm. point, but he definitely knows there is some kind of ruse at play because he says it's a double cross, blah, 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 and then he's and then he's yeah. intercepted. One thing so, that our producer Mike pointed out earlier is that this is a great movie that it's screenplay wise from the perspective of we find things out before McLean does. Mm. Like we find out that they're not terrorists but thieves earlier than he does. We I feel like we kind of know they're gonna blow the roof up because we see them setting up the debt or we know they're up there. We know something's going on on the roof. We might come to that realization at the exact same moment as him. But it's a great movie in terms of dramatic irony. You know, things that the audience knows that that the characters don't, which like Super Shakespearean, McTiernan's a Shakespearean, you know, guy loves Shakespeare. Like, 
the movie uses some of these things really to its advantage. We know Hans is Hans. McLean might not know Hans is Hans, right? We know all these sort of right. things that are interesting that, yes. that, that, that add to the tension in the yeah, movie. The we suspense. know Thornburg is going to their house. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's an interesting one in that the ticking clock, like in other movies that we'll be talking about, Speed being being a great example, right. ticking clock is established very early on, right? It's essentially it's the central conceit of the movie. Right. The ticking clock is intrinsic to the central conceit. Or unstoppable. Is sure. A great example, yeah. Where yeah. 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 Turn into uh, when a it's going in an unstoppable, when it hits that curve, isn't it? That that's yeah. that's the point where the, you know. The, so whereas in in Die Hard, actually, the ticking clock is is quite subtle and is right towards the end of right. Uh, right. Is that well, actually the right t- at the end? We are participating and trying to figure out like what's the twist in this movie? Yeah. What's the thing that's gonna? It's an unusual use of this device. Yeah. But again, it's dramatic. It's it's it's. I think it's McTiernan's. And listen, not just McTiernan, but like he's a dramatist. That's his his you know expertise. So let's talk about the action. What is your favorite action sequence or, or scene and why? I'm going to put this question back to you. Oh, okay. I want to okay. hear from you first. Cool. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. For me, I mean, as as we talked about the the, the sort of the musical nature of yeah. it, the symphonic nature of it, I think a typical, a great action movie should be topping itself constantly and yeah. this movie really does that it's an amazing blueprint in that regard because sometimes you have will have an action movie there where the best sequences might be in the first act or in the first half or before the third act right. whereas actually the real classics aliens is another great example of a movie that is continues to top itself it's like set piece after set piece after set piece after set piece it also has a symphonic quality and the james oh, horner score in that movie Oof. is just un, un, unbelievable so so for me to that point even though I love the SWAT assault and that bringing the car, I love that whole uh, sequence. But for me, my favorite action sequence is the the the, the helicopter the insertion ship. sequence. When you see those helicopters going down the street yeah. and that sound, yeah. you know, there's the something about amazing. that and how it builds and builds and builds to this confluence of circumstances where McLean is trying to get the hostages off the roof. We know it's going to blow. The FBI think he's a terrorist and they're pretty reckless anyway. So they're trying to kill him. So he's got nowhere to go. If he stays on the roof, he'll either be shot or blown up. And then it all builds to this kind of climactic moment. So for me, that is my favorite action sequence. And I think in a great action movie, you're, you want to save the best for last. That's a great answer. And I think him jumping off the building is like, holy shit. And I also don't, I can't imagine what like, where we are sort of spoiled with absolutely gonzo action movies now, you know. But I can't imagine what it was like in 1988 to be like, to see this movie and kind of go like, holy shit, they flew helicopters around downtown LA for an action. Like, we all take it for granted now, but it had to have been amazing at the time. 
And then finally, on this, the anatomy of an action movie, the humor and how, you know, I I think humor is such an important element of action movies to diffuse uh, some of the, you know, the more serious moments. Yeah, because there's some really dark moments in this movie. There's also some very funny moments. And there's some moments that are somewhere in the middle. Like, I have to say this is dark. The SWAT team writhing on the ground after the explosion is very, very, very funny. Because they're just all like, ah! And it's just like, and it's such a stupid plan. Like, this idea is so stupid. It's blunt force trauma. Yeah, and this movie has a real distrust of these, like, the the police. It has a distrust distrust of the FBI. Like, it's not, it, it never presents any of them as, like, Valorous or moral. It's sort or of anti-militaristic of in it's a way, very or, or like anti-state, anti-state power. Yeah, I totally like. think so. And I think the antithesis of that is personified in like Al Al as being the only sensible person on the ground. Is this like de- this like sort of like this beat cop driving around is the only regular guy. Like, there's no better condemnation of of the sort of state thing than the guy saying it's just like fucking Saigon. You're like, oh my authorization. God. Like, you're How a- about the United States fucking government? <laughs> yeah, it's like you're nuts. You're out of control, and <laughs> yeah. it's just very like. It's again, like when it's power like, goes to your head. Right. This you make bad decisions, you and know? it's it's almost one thing that makes a more sympathetic character is you're like. The corporations in this movie suck. Like, it's all very fake. The cops all seem to be acting in these bizarre, brutal ways. The FBI is, like, gonna good, is comfortable losing 20, 25% of the hostages. Of course, Gruber's like, money, desert island, that's all I need. Which is, you know, and McLean is just like, I don't want any of this either. I just, I want to be with my kids. You know, like, it really sets up this interesting dynamic in that sense. And the, the other moment that I wanted to say that just a, in that sequence that I love, the SWAT assault, is the moment where the cop gets his, like, arm cut on, like, the, a rose thorn <laughs> or down. whatever. <laughs> what a brilliant moment. Yeah, of just, I totally like, forgot. It's sort of like, Ooh, oh my ah. God, yeah, he cuts his finger. Oh, it's so Fantastic. good. Meanwhile, McLean has glass up, like, in his ass, and he's, he's still running he's like, around. Ah. Yes. Yeah, so it's so delicate, this SWAT team. Uh, <laughs> a wonderful moment. Oh, my um, God. So this episode's all about Die Hard. I think as part of talking about Die Hard, we should talk about the things that influenced Die Hard. Most obvious one is the fact that this is an adaptation of a book by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. I knew this exists. I've never read it. I briefly flirted with like getting it out of the library before we recorded, but truth be told, I didn't have time. I assume you've read it. I have read it, yeah. How many times? Uh, only the once. That's disappointing to me, Phil. I thought we were going to be like, well, the 10th time I figured this out. I discovered new realizations. New How is the book... Nothing lasts forever different from the movie Die Hard. The main one I would say just is the overall tone. The book is of its time in the sense of the cynical, paranoid thrillers of the 70s. It's almost more in line with the spirit of French. I was going to say, yeah, Parallax View or The Conversation, Mm, French Connection. That kind of of bleak ending that's like ambiguous and you're not really sure how you feel about it. It's sort of more real life and messy and that kind of down down vibe. Does it have like the same, is it McLean? Is McLean the character in it or is he different? Is he similar? Character is called Joe Leland, um, who is an ex-cop turned security consultant. Mm -hmm. He's much older. He goes to the skyscraper, which is for an oil. 
in LA on Wilshire, Wilshire Boulevard. They're called Claxon Oil, and it's his daughter, not his wife. The, the 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 wife is actually is actually dead. She's called Karen, and he goes to see his daughter Stephanie Gennaro uh, for her Christmas party. Oh, so she's taking her mom's. She has her mom's last name, not his name. I actually, it's her married name. Uh, it's, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so she's married. So she's married. So the set the setup and the basic kind of the skeleton of it, the infrastructure of the story is very very close. But the attitude, the characters, some of the characters have remained. The ones that I was most interested in were actually uh, the differences and the similarities are, are is Dwayne Robinson and Al Powell. So Dwayne Robinson does feature, and he, there's a wonderful um, quote where he describes this. This really speaks to the attitude we were talking about, the anti-authoritarian or right. anti-authority attitude. This is from the book. It says, civilization was full of Dwayne Robinsons, seeing everything that happened to them as opportunities for their own advancement and aggrandizement. They were the spoilers of society, with Richard Nixon being at the top of the list. See, this is, wow. The book is incredibly dark, and in particular, the ending. There's two elements of the ending that I thought were, were fascinating that really speak to the difference in kind of tonal approach. First is that in the final showdown, when Joe Joe Leland confronts Gruber, and the character is called Gruber, he's called Little Tony, Little Tony the Red, Anton Gruber. He's like a he is a radical leftist terrorist, so he does have a political agenda. When eventually it gets to the showdown, and the watch is actually in there too. That's that that device is set up. Gruber pulls his daughter off the building with him and show his daughter dies, which is a pretty heavy ending. That's a heavy ending. And very in keeping with this kind of like French Connection type vibe of like, oh, that's a steeply uncomfortable 70s feeling, which is not was not palatable in the 80s, especially for a summer blockbuster or really any movie. Right. Unless you want to say the original First Blood where Rambo was supposed to die. But. Um, so they, like they, they changed like sanded it. off some of the hard edges for the for the movie. Absolutely, version. but it's but still they there. It's the there ba- in the DNA. Yeah, but they, they they certainly took the DNA. They certainly took the framework of it. But the other the other big um, difference that was fascinating to me was ju- that with Carl comes back, the same thing happens. The same beat is played. But at this point, that Joe Leland is trying to make his way out of the building. It ends up being this messy showdown with Dwayne Robinson. And Al Powell pulls Dwayne Robinson into the line of fire. Carl kills Robinson. And then Al Powell shoots Carl. And then he tells Joe Leland, like, hey, just so we're clear, like, Dwayne Robinson died as a hero. So it has its super Man, what, what's, cynical. Was Roderick Thorpe okay? <laughs> What's the deal? I, but it, I, t- I will tell it is a terrific book. It's a good book. It's, it's like... I read it in two sittings. It it's short. It's lean. It's so hard boiled. It's crisp. It's it's a fantastic book. A great adventure story. So like, this is not the first appearance of Joe Leland. In that's a, that's in a right. Book, right. That's right. So there was a previous book called The Detective that was made into a film with Frank Sinatra, where you meet Joe Leland and he's a detective in in New York. I think The Detective, which is basically a meat and potatoes procedural for Frank, where he it's a more serious part. He was sold as an adult look at a police detective. Oh, it's it's similarly cynical and it's about him navigating the politics of New York Police Department and the politics of the city and trying to kind of walk a straight line in a crooked world. For me the way the best way I would say I would frame it is it's almost like John McClane's dad. You know, uh, he kind of plays like he he's a tough New York cop who doesn't play by the political rules and, and butts heads with his captain and that feels very McClane, but the this 
so that's where maybe the DNA seeped in. But it, and also he's a second generation cop. He says so. There's a feeling like the lineage of being cops is part of uh, part of this whole tradition with the right. McLean character and whatnot. And it was like passed on father to son. How old was Fritz Sinatra when he was in the detective? Probably it was sixty eight so, when the movie was made. So geez, he's probably forties. Yeah, I would guess I would like, say. like mid to late forties. Yeah, I bring that up only because. He was offered or had to be contractually offered the part in Die Hard. That's right. And, to play and John McClane in his 60s. That's right. Because the character in the book was 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 originally older. But he, Frank Sinatra said, quote, I'm too old and too rich. So he, he let everybody off the hook. He, did, he, he understood. He I didn't want to be running around getting his feet cut. At the up. risk of, yeah, I don't know that it works with Sinatra. And it, it, Willis is like 35, right? So when he was adapting the novel, the screenwriter, the, the first screenwriter to develop the project, Jeb Stewart, he had this eureka moment because he he was a young guy. He was about the age. He was in his mid thirties. He'd had an argument with his wife. He had a, he had a young uh, couple of young kids trying to provide for his family, dealing with those kind of life stresses. Had an, had a big argument because he was stressed out. Nearly had an accident on the freeway. Nearly died. Luckily, he didn't. And that was his light bulb moment where he was like. This is not about a 65-year-old guy. This is about a 35-year-old guy who had an argument with his wife, should have said sorry, didn't, and then really bad shit happened. I love that because it's like the the like sort of impetus or the seed for the movie is so relatable to anyone who like lives a normal life. He's like, oh, I got to provide my family. I got to do all these things. Like it sort of grounds the movie in reality, which at the end of the day, the whole story is kind of about a guy reconciling with his wife. And through sort of an extraordinary circumstance and situation. And to this point, I mean, when they were exploring the earlier version of it, before they made that realization, they had got, they were looking at the older action stars like Clint Eastwood and right. Paul Newman, who I think turned it down because he'd pr- pretty much done something similar in Towering Inferno, running around a building that was on fire. And a lot of the imagery from Towering Inferno, I th- actually, oh, actually, there's an interesting story about that because... Roderick Thorpe saw Towering Inferno, had a dream about being pursued by gunmen in a skyscraper, and then conceived nothing lasts forever. Die Hard is sort of based on a nightmare that Roderick Thorpe had after seeing the Towering Inferno. Have it, you ever seen the Towering Inferno? Yes. I've never seen it. I watched it I watched it recently to to place it in this context. It's it look, it's a completely different story. It actually in my opinion, it feels very it, there's certain movies from the seventies. Even like one that's directly relevant, taking taking a Pelham one two three that came out the same year Great movie. that feels super contemporary, whereas Tower and Inferno to me feels very dated sort and of, of dated. its time. Yeah. It's a very kind of like unhip movie. Yeah. But the only I would say the only DNA that made its way in, obviously you got the skyscraper, you know, fi- a fiery skyscraper and helicopters, and the building itself has a kind of personality in the way that Nakatomi Plaza does. But there are some specific it's almost like a character in a the character movie. in the movie, yeah, and and. There are some specific shots in Towering Inferno of like the elevator shafts that are almost directly in Die Hard. And so it's a, it's it's not a direct influence in terms of story shape or anything like that or characters, but I think it's it was it was a certainly a direct influence on Roderick Thorpe. So Phil, big question, most important question of the show: Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? <sighs> What a what a, this is a huge kind of what this is, I've got a huge detailed deposition about this. Yes, of course yes, it, it fucking is. It's is. A Christmas movie. Of I course it is. This conversation. What a, <laughs> it makes no sense. Yes, it's a what? Christmas movie. Who is having this debate? Who is having this debate? Who thinks differently? And right, the Run DMC song. Yeah, okay, exactly. moving on. Moving let's on. Let's wrap up this. So, so wrap although Die Hard was actually nominated for 
for for Oscars, action movies rarely receive recognition from the Academy, what might be considered the major category. So we want to put things straight and have our own action movie Academy Awards, our, our, aka the Die Hard Oscars. Let's wrap this up with the Die Hard Oscars. Yes. We, do we need to put on shirts and tuxedos? Like, <laughs> we just keep wearing the clothes. It's casual. You think it's casual? It's casual. Oh, cool. it's, a casual yeah. it's like the early it's casual Friday where everybody was drunk and it was on like <laughs> yeah. a Sunday afternoon. All right. I'll, I'll kick us off. So here's what we're going to do. We got four awards. We're going to go one by one. We'll list the nominees, winners for this category. We have not discussed this before. So let's see what we get out of it. Okay. The first Oscar, uh, diehard Oscar, the John McClane Yippee Kaye Motherfucker Award for Best Singer. What's the best singer in this movie? I mean, I'm big. Uh, the, the nominees for me would be No Shit Lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering, ordering a, a pizza? Fucking, yeah, yeah. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. ho. Okay. Of course, Yippee Kaye Motherfucker. Shoot the glass. That's a good but one. My personal favorite. Is that a zinger? Is shoot the glass a zinger? Mm, yeah, you're right. It's a good question. Uh, is it it's ineligible? Not like a pl- I don't think it's. I think it's. I. I think, and this is a good talk. A zinger is sort of a, a line that finishes a scene or yeah, li- lifts a the humor. A button, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a button. And shoot the glass, yeah. though it is arguably my favorite line in the movie. I don't think constitutes a zinger. I think Great your point. other choices are zingers. Great I think point. they're really, really good. That's shoot the glass has been canceled. My personal favorite, my vote would go to a line that's actually also in the book. It'll be in a different place in the film. Geronimo, motherfucker. When does he say Geronimo, motherfucker? It's when he throws the the chair down. Oh, that's good. <laughs> the chair of explosives. I have to Simple. go. It's obvious, but I have to go with come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. Classic Great line. choice. The Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for scene stealing. My nominees are, of course, Hans Gruber. Sure. Which I'll, one? Which scene? Just every scene. I think the Bill Clay scene. That's oh, a pretty yes. good scene. Yeah, yeah. Scene. That's yeah, next yeah. level acting. Oh, God. He's We're so... doing a German doing an American accent, you know, yeah, but it still has very... some of the German in it. It's pretty sophisticated. It's pretty yes. You know, pole vaulting. Hans Gruber, Al Powell, Uli the Candy Thief. Uli the Candy Thief. The SWAT cop who gets cut by the thorn and Argyle. Go, I want to hear your choice. I think it's, I mean, he's, the, the clues in the name has got to be just Gruber. I think it's Gruber. Gruber and I think still- you're right. I think that is the scene of scenes stealing, just like next level crazy gymnastics as an actor. I'm going to go with every scene that Theo is in. Actually, I'm going to give you a very specific example. I think when he's, when he's defensive coordinating, that's a really great scene. But I think the scene, the most scene stealing moment in the movie is one of the funniest when Gruber says, now you can hack the vault. And he says, you didn't bring me along for my charming personality, which is like such a great, I immediately know who this guy is line. So that's my pick. The Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the Movie. So our nominees are Dick Thornburg himself, Dwayne T. Robinson, Ellis, Agent Johnson, a special agent Johnson, and the LAPD dispatcher who tries to cite McLean for misuse of the police radio. Ooh, very good. What's your pick? For this one, I think it's Dwayne Robinson. But Phil, this I have a question, be... though. Can it be anyone besides Dick Thornburg if the award is, na- <sighs> award is named you're after him? You're putting me on the spot. Aren't you? I was just trying to be clever, but I yeah. think I think you're right that maybe, you know. You but, but, it, but this is an unusual action movie in the sense that there's a plethora of dicks. There's a lot of dicks in this movie. <laughs> My pick is not Dick Thornburg. It's Harvey. The newscaster, because which I we didn't. God, there's so much talking about this movie, but the the newscast stuff is brilliant. It's like Paul Verhoeven satire level good. But my favorite bit is when he says Stockholm is in Norway. As no, in, what does he say? As in Helsinki, no, Sweden. Say? What does he say? Yeah, he says it's in Sweden, and the and the guy's like. Finland. <laughs> it's just great dick, dickish, idiot behavior. Also, eat it, Harvey. And then Harvey's like staring death eyes at Thornburg and he's live on the 10 o'clock news. It's just, it's great. Best Death Award. Our nominees for the best death are Tony's Neck Break, 
Ooh. Marco being shot in the boardroom under the table. Yeah. The FBI guy's helicopter crash. Al Powell killing Carl. And Ooh. Hans Gruber's fall. So did you did you have a pick? Yeah, oh, it's Marco. Oh, it's absolutely Marco. I think... I actually now think this conversation has led me to believe that Marco getting shot uh, from under the table is my favorite moment in the entire movie because I am so into how fucking unhinged Marco, no more table, (laughs) like it's just loses his mind. And I I just, that that might be my favorite scene in the movie and a great zinger. Thanks for the advice after he's blown him to to pieces. Your pick? I think I'd, I've got to go with hands before that shot. The music is amazing in that. The, that the, yeah, his expression and the technical achievement of that shot, you know, it looks so real and it is so real and the acting is real and it's just, and it's, it's a haunting death and even reappears in Die Hard with a Vengeance. They, they re-show that moment. Yeah, which is one of my favorite moments in Die Hard. It stays with, with you. Okay. Just because I really want to say this, that now it's time to play Double Jeopardy Trivia, Fun Facts Quiz. So you're okay. going to quiz me. And I, I am going to quiz you. Yes, I'm going to quiz you. That's why, that's why I'll be good. That's why I'm, I'm good. This interview's over. This is where the scores can really change. Which notable director was offered the movie first? I can give Paul you Paul Verhoeven? Yes. Nailed it. Wow. That's Thank that's you. Do you have any impressive. idea why he didn't do it? I think he was just getting offered everything. Well, it's also interesting that Jan de Bont shot it, yeah. which would make me think that maybe Paul Verhoeven brought him on and then yeah. Jan de Bont hung Well, up. actually, McTiernan loved The Fourth Man, apparently, so he, he loved that style. Who doesn't love yeah. The Fourth Man? When, when he got the part in Die Hard, Bruce Willis was primarily known as a television actor, but which other 80s TV stars were purportedly offered the role of John McClane? You have a great the guy you never see but asks the questions on trivia shows. <laughs> I just want to let you know. Um, uh, Paul Newman? Uh, a TV actor. Oh, TV so actor. 80s TV actors. Can I have, uh, can I, can Just I like throw one a guess. hint? One hint. Actually, Bruce Willis was in a show with one of these guys that was a very popular. Not <laughs> that would have been an interesting <laughs> choice. Oh, I'd watch the hell out of that. There movie. was a certain show set in Florida about cops. Miami Vice. Wait, who? Who was it? Don Johnson. Don Johnson. And MacGyver. Richard Dean Anderson was apparently in the running. Which is which? He's too, um, he's too clean. Richard Dean Anderson's too clean to kill all these. But guys he, he would have been way. good with the gizmos. He would have been good with the gizmos. Yeah. But it's not the same. It's just not the same. No, it, was, it would have been Ugh. not great. I love Richard Dean Anderson. All right. Which Australian actor who would later play the lead in another huge summer blockbuster was apparently approached about the role of Hans Gruber first? Paul Hogan. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not the Crocodile Hunter. It's not the Crocodile Hunter. Australian actor had a big role in. Another huge summer blockbuster that came out, I'll, tell, I'll give you the clue, in 1993. Oh, shit. I, I'm really annoyed because I feel like I, I, I'm, you're going to tell me this and I'm going to be very angry at myself. Who? Sam Neill. Sam Neill was offered a part I don't know if the... he was offered, but he was approached. So that's kind of interesting. To you can play see John McClane? To play Gruber. To play Gruber. Okay. You can kind of see that. You can totally see it. Yeah, you can see it, right? I mean, look, no, Richmond's untouchable, but... I mean, there's like, it would be a softer, it'd be a softer kind of performance. But he played Damien like, no, in The Omen, he? played Damien yeah, in The Omen, yeah. and he's in Possession, which you've never seen. Possession is one of the most wild movies ever made. Okay. All right, last two. Which diehard actor has a close relative who is also in The Detective? I have no idea. Hart Bachner, who plays Ellis. His dad, Lloyd, has a great role. I thought of Ellis. I thought of Ellis. But I was like, I was trying to think like Hollywood royalty, anything like that. Damn it! And our last one, um, the Pacific Courier logo, which is on the terrorist truck, also features in two other notable action movies, both from the 1990s. It's kind of an in-joke from the production designer. Can you guess either of 
Well, I would imagine that they would have to be L.A. set movies, right? Actually, one of them is. One I'm, of looking them is. La- I'm looking at our notes from later on. Is One Lethal Weapon 2? No. Good guess. Speed. Speed. It's in Speed, and it's also in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, it's one of the trucks that blows up at the beginning. That's one of the great New York movies. Well, it's clear we don't like Die Hard. It's yeah. unfortunate that we're not much to talk about. Warm film. No, it's great. It's the great. It really is like, are we going to be able to top this talking about a million other action movies? Because well, this is the great action movie. I am time. so excited to talk about it because I love all action movies. Good, bad, ugly. I love, I love them all. I want to treat them all with the same love, you know, level of love and respect. Um, not everyone is, not every episode is going to be like this. Where there's this much depth, but Die Hard is the daddy. It deserves it. It deserves this kind of this kind of discussion of a deep dive. I think, and I could not be more excited to go on that on this adventure, on this exploration journey with you to look at how Die Hard's DNA found its way into all these other incredible action movies. Some some are bona fide classics and we've talked about some of them already there's but actually the 80s and the 90s in particular was a real golden age the for, of action, for movies. action movies and yeah. we're going to get into them all one by one and we're going to track how Die Hard's DNA uh, affected them and ran through ran through the genre fantastic i love it well phil this has been a blast it's good to see you as always we'll be back next time with some new fbi guys thanks everybody Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast hosted and written by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Special thanks to Suki Chu and the whole team at Sugar 23. We'll be back next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.